This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. In co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. In episode 53, we explore the power of seaweed in addressing environmental challenges, promoting sustainability and enhancing nutrition. Seaweed is thought to be one of the most ancient organisms on Earth, dating back more than 1.2 billion years. It's also completely different to land-based plants, requiring neither soil nor a root structure to grow. But the big question is, how can a slimy plant like seaweed contribute to the battle against climate change? To begin with, Sia Briganti, founder and CEO of Lollyware, tells us about her tech company's seaweed-derived products. Her work aims to replace single-use plastics, combating environmental issues while supporting livelihoods in global coastal communities. Then we introduce you to our latest Recipes for Change chef, J.P. McMahon. J.P. is the owner and culinary director of Michelin-starred Aniar Restaurant and award-winning Spanish restaurant Cava Bottega in Galway, Ireland. He's not only a celebrated chef, but also a committed advocate for sustainable and local produce. Stay tuned as he tells us all about the usage of seaweed and sea urchins in local food production. Next up, naturopath and psychotherapist Rebecca Goldhurst discusses the nutritional benefits of seaweed. She's the author of The Seaweed Forager, so we'll also be talking to her about the potential risks of extracting resources from the ocean's natural habitat. Is seaweed farming really a sustainable practice? All your questions will be answered in this episode. And joining us at the end of the podcast, we have Bren Smith, co-executive director of Green Wave and owner of Thimble Island Ocean Farm. We'll be talking to him about ocean farming initiatives that are effectively combating climate change. Don't forget, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform. And please don't forget to rate us. Coming up, time to start talking seaweed with Sia Briganti from Lollyware. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Lollyware is a tech company replacing single-use plastics with seaweed-derived products. Their innovative technology, starting with a seaweed-based drinking straw, not only combats environmental challenges, but also sustains livelihoods in global coastal communities by creating demand for farmed seaweed. The product aims to replace millions of plastic straws in the United States, marking a significant step towards a more sustainable future. Sia Briganti, founder and CEO of Lollyware, is a climate activist and social innovator. She's confident that by harnessing the power of nature, we can achieve a plastic-free future. Sia spoke to our reporter, Kira Rainsby, about how seaweed can tackle plastic pollution, improve ocean health and decarbonize the future. 
Welcome, C. Welcome to our podcast. What benefits have you found seaweed to have for tackling climate change issues on the long-term basis? Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Kira. So seaweed is, we believe, fundamentally critical for the future of the planet. So first, you know, and foremost, I believe seaweed will have a positive impact on the climate crisis in that as seaweed grows, it's removing carbon from the atmosphere and the ocean. You know, so think about it like this, like all plants, seaweed actually, you know, photosynthesizes and essentially harnesses sunlight and carbon dioxide to grow and it grows quite rapidly. So seaweed pulls a lot of carbon dioxide out, which allows us to repurpose our carbon emissions into its tissues. Along the way, of course, a portion of the carbon of seaweed gets buried in marine sediment and stored in the deep ocean, sequestering carbon. What lollyware does is we simply give the seaweed a haircut, we dry it, mill it, and we create a new technology to replace plastic. Another benefit of seaweed is we should leave land-based forest and trees in the ground. Seaweed grows so rapidly that it's really a, a more suitable crop for packaging and, and for plastic. And then, you know, seaweed certainly contributes to a healthy ocean. It combats ocean acidification, which is certainly a symptom of climate change. So as the seaweed grows, of course, it's absorbing that dissolved carbon dioxide and creating these safe pockets in the ocean where acidification is a bit muted. So it makes the ocean healthier and releases nutrients and oxygen. As you may know, a lot of fish species have been farmed in factories such as salmon and has been the subject of a lot of debate in recent years because of these issues surrounding disease. So at Lollyware, I was wondering how you are avoiding this and how are you keeping the fishing of species sustainable? So you bring up a critical point. Lollyware believe in the importance of regenerative agriculture. So we are effectively taking regenerative agricultural principles, adapting them to aquaculture, that is seaweed farming, and really thinking about a whole systems approach to biodiversity and to regenerative farming. Seaweed farming, of course, doesn't require land. So what that means, quite simply, is it doesn't require fertilizer or water. And so given that land is a scarce resource and many land-grown crops, of course, require all these poisonous fertilizers. What we're doing is we're farming seaweed in the ocean without environmentally damaging chemicals. And we're actually focused on growing seaweed where we're able to enrich the biodiversity in the area. And of course, it goes without saying that seaweed farming takes up, I might add, very little space in the ocean because it's growing vertically. And how have you seen regenerative ocean farming have an impact on mitigating the effects of climate change? As mentioned, we're focused on proliferating the regenerative seaweed economy worldwide. And that can have many positive impacts outside of positive environmental impacts. We're looking at livelihoods as a key part of the equation and partnering with small island developing states and nations to bring new economies online where perhaps, especially in coastal communities, fisheries have collapsed. There's a need to bring more seaweed farming online to provide livelihoods. So it has a multitude of benefits beyond the environmental impact and the potential for, for seaweed to be a carbon sink. In fact, the term for the carbon that any marine-based life form captures or sequesters is blue carbon. And we are now starting to quantify that blue carbon. I mean, that's going to be very key 
for when we measure the impact of, for example, what Lollyware is doing with life cycle analyses for our materials and the fact that all Lollyware's materials are 45% less carbon intensive than PHA, for example, polyhydroxyl acrylate. So we really want to ensure that we are replacing plastic with a less carbon intensive technology, not adding to the problem. Finally, have you been able to see how these methods would help alleviate food insecurities for both farmers and consumers globally and also within rural communities? Of course, and seaweed has a multitude of benefits and uses beyond materials, food, and food has a rich cultural tradition throughout Asia. In fact, I believe over 95% of seaweed is grown throughout Asia. And I think the challenge that we will have with proliferating seaweed throughout the rest of the world will be to really innovate in that category, whether it be through beautiful vegetable burgers made with kelp, which we, which we see in the market. There's a lot of incredible innovations happening, which will bring seaweed into the mainstream culinary consciousness outside of Asia, which, which we're very, very excited about. Thank you, Sia. You can find out more about Lollyware at www.lolliware.com. And now we are happy to introduce you to our new Recipes for Change chef, J.P. McMahon, joining us from Galway, Ireland. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. J.P. McMahon is a renowned chef, restaurateur, and author. He has two award-winning restaurants in Galway and also runs the Anya Boutique Cookery School. Throughout his journey, Chef McMahon has been committed to the educational aspects of food, to supporting local and sustainable produce, and engaging directly with farmers and producers. He's also the founder of a large international food symposium called Food on the Edge, taking place in Galway since 2015, every October. Food on the Edge has featured some of the very best international chefs from across the globe, such as Massimo Bottura, coming to cook and discuss all things about the future of the culinary and food world. Chef McMahon chatted to our reporter Kira Rainsby, about using local land and water resources around to make food, with the likes of seaweed and sea urchins. He also discussed what the future of food will look like. Welcome, JP, to Recipes for Change and to our podcast. So I wanted to start by asking, what inspired you to become a chef and how has this initial inspiration shaped your culinary journey and philosophy over the years? It's hard to pinpoint like exact moments, I think, when I suppose when I wanted to become a chef, like I've been interested in cooking certainly before I started cooking professionally when I was 15. And I suppose family meals were always an important affair. And even though there wasn't anything kind of culinary or gastronomic about them, we all sat down, I think nearly the eight of us when we were growing up uh, and ate. And I suppose I, I enjoyed the connection with food and the ability, I think, to cook for people. I think it was that excitement about going home and being able to make, I don't know, whether it was a Swiss roll or a carrot cake or some jam or a scone. I think that kind of learning influence, influenced me and that idea of kind of cooking as a as, as a gift, you know, and I think the, that kind of ties in with kind of Irish hospitality in relation to like my grandmother breaking brown bread every day and maybe baking, baking bread with her sometimes. So what made you interested in joining Recipes for Change? 
How important is it to you to support farmers, particularly in rural communities, in the face of growing climate impacts? I mean, for me, essentially, cooking is is trying to tell a story and give a gift. And so sometimes I feel that I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between the farmer and uh, the end user or the customer. So you're trying to tell the story of this is where this came from and this is the person that grew it and, and we're cooking it. So I think for me, it's it's very easy to cook when you have farmers producing really, really good, wholesome ingredients, particularly when they are kind of doing it out of love as well. And, and I think that they're investing their time and our restaurants are about like 15 years old now and we have grown up with farmers that we began with it's it's really nice to see their journey as well and it is it connects you as a as a community and i think that for me that's the only way to run a restaurant is is to link it into its farmers and then to link it into its community and at your restaurants you use seasonal and sustainable local products including seaweed and sea urchins for example so how do you source these products and what are the benefits of incorporating seaweed for example into your culinary creations for me seaweed is a very important irish ingredient it's very overlooked like it has been consumed in ireland for as long as people have been here and I think it, it became neglected. But I think for me, it's very important that I try and champion seaweed as a kind of very important native Irish ingredient because it's something that like literally is on our doorstep. It's incredibly tasty. It's incredibly sustainable and you can farm it. And it's like there's so many different benefits. And I think that ties in with using shellfish and whether they're sea urchins or abalone or hand dive scallops or anything like that, that is trying to represent the local landscape and give people a taste of that because I suppose the more global we get, sometimes the more homogenized the world becomes. And I think it's really important that restaurants try and see, well, what is around them and how do I make food from that? And and that's been one of our projects from the get-go at Anir. It's like, well, what is around us and how do we make a cuisine from that? And is that Irish cuisine? Is it is it just, just local cuisine? I mean, th- these are kind of more complex questions, but I think it's very exciting to go and get a sea urchin and, and then see, well, how are we going to put this on the menu and how are people going to react? I mean, ironically, as an island nation, we have a very uh, difficult relationship with, with seaweed and seafood. And I think that for me, it's my job to try and encourage people to get back into that. And how do you manage to balance the extraction of these ocean and land resources with your commitment to combating climate change? I'm I'm always thinking that, of course, the more that you take, the more the resource dwindles. But I think it's 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 trying to use them in ways that do do not overuse them. So, of course, like seaweed is as a season as well. And when it's not in season, say pepper dulse is just coming into season now. And it's very exciting because we can take it and we can harvest it sustainably. So we leave the root attached to it so it grows again. So if we're out foraging, we always try and make sure that we take less than a third out of the environment. And the same we're working with some of our seaweed suppliers as well. I mean, certainly they're they're conscious as well of how much they can take drawing on a resource that isn't finite. And and that that's the same for like say we're going into game season now, and then we start to have pigeon and uh, wild duck and stuff on the menu. And then in January and February that changes again, and we might go back to beef and then into lamb. And then so I think it's to try and keep the options moving in the restaurant, so we're not relying on on one ingredient for the whole year. So we're actually giving the the environment time to to recuperate 
And have you seen any positive changes in the community, especially among young people, because of your efforts to educate them about sustainability through the Anyer School Project and the Cookery School? Initially, it's it's trying to get people interested in, in cooking from scratch. I mean, that's a first stepping stone. And then it's to get them interested in where the ingredient comes from. And I think it's a kind of gradual process. And then it's like, well, why are we using these ingredients and not other ingredients? And do we need, like, say, lemons? We don't use lemons or limes at all in the restaurant because we could find other alternatives. Avocados is a good one because they put a lot of stress on the environment and also they, they're transported and they're overconsumed. So we try and infiltrate into the classes these ideas and it's always going to be a push and pull in relation to kind of local versus global and we don't use everything here in Ireland so we, we need to import some stuff but we don't need to import everything and I think apples is a good example like 95% of the apples in Ireland are imported and there's very very few options to eat an Irish apple daily. Finally based on all the projects that you have done including Food on the Edge what do you believe the future of cooking and sustainability in the culinary world will look like? I think it will become more and more digitized. And I think that on the, I suppose on the downside, I think AI and robotics will, will become involved much more on in, in terms of mass, mass, the mass production of food. But I hope that there will always be a kind of resistance to that. And I think that cooking is one of the fundamental things that make us human as a group that we come together and we cook. And I, I hope that's retained. And I, I think it's a very special part of, of being human. For me, Food in the Edge is part of that plan in terms of trying to make the food environment a bit more sustainable by inviting people from all over the world to talk about, well, what are their issues and, and how are they overcoming them? And it's like a collective learning that we can all kind of reach out to each other. We all eat together communally. And even though it, there's lots and lots of famous chefs and famous food entrepreneurs, like it's it's not about tasting menus and, and kind of high gastronomy. It's about sitting down together and, and sharing a meal and breaking bread together. That was our latest Recipes for Change chef, J.P. McMahon, talking to our reporter, Kira. Check out J.P.'s restaurant at www.aniarestaurant, Ania spelt A-N-I-A dot I-E. And the Food on the Edge website, which is www.foodontheedge.ie. Coming up next, we get a closer look into the nutritional benefits of seaweed from Rebecca Goldhurst. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. Now we welcome Rebecca Goldhurst, a naturopath and psychotherapist who recently published her book called The Seaweed Forager. It is within New Zealand waters that Rebecca discovered her curiosity for seaweed foraging. With over 900 different species of seaweed and about 40% considered endemic to New Zealand waters, Seaweed is essential to its coastlines, providing a haven and food for other marine life. And Michelle, did you know it's also a highly nutritious food, rich in vitamins, minerals, carbohydrates, protein and fat? I had no idea. That's very good to know. Yeah. When dried, it can maintain its nutritional properties for up to 10 years. 10 years. Long time. Even the type of seaweed you get at a Chinese restaurant when it's all fried and crispy. That's delicious. Amazing, But yeah. fry anything and it tastes good, I yes, find. Yes, no idea. Yeah. No, in, and in Ireland as well, there's a tradition 
of eating what they call dullus, which oh. is like that. It's it's the seaweed you pick up mm-hmm. on the beach. That sort of big fat seaweed, yes, which is slimy thick ones. with bubbles in it. Yes. And my mum used to give it to me. Oh, that sounds oh, it was yummy! Absolutely awful. Nutritious really and sustainable too. And that wasn't yeah, it wasn't my favourite tea time snack. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, Rebecca spoke to our reporter Kira Rainsby in more detail about what seaweed foraging is all about and her discoveries along the way. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for joining us. Can you first explain to us a little bit more about the process of seaweed foraging? Absolutely. With the nature of foraging, it's always in consideration of the environment, hence the nature of foraging. And so one of the values and the precedents of foraging is that you would always only take what you need and not excess. It's a process of really revisiting often the same site and seeing when it's growing prolifically and when it's not and what affects it and ideally working together synergistically with the environment where the seaweed is to take care of it. So you have recently released your book, The Seaweed Forager. Can you tell us more about the added benefits then of seaweed to our food and to tackling climate change? After doing a lot of research on seaweed, discovering what an incredible nutritional superfood seaweed really is, and it's a high-protein food. It has some omega-3s and iron and magnesium, and the incredible nature of it is that once it's dry, it keeps its nutrients and so can be stored for a long period of time and is very good for travelling. Raping and pillaging the ocean for seaweed isn't going to be effective for climate change, that it really is making sure that the environment is taken care of. 90% of organisms live in the ocean, so it wouldn't be reducing their food, their shelter, their resources. And so as a food source for humans, it means that we certainly don't need to eat any animals. And if it's grown locally too, then it, you know, it wouldn't need to be transported And it can grow very easy in some varieties of seaweed can grow up to two metres a day. And so it can be something that's very accessible or reseeded in different places. And so I think that it's doing it in a way that would have no impact on climate warming and be very beneficial reducing what we're doing to produce food now for the many billions of people on the planet. Now, is seaweed farming or foraging more efficient for reversing the effects of climate change and for feeding rural communities? And what generally are the differences? What I noticed in my research is that there is a lot of seaweed farmed already. Seaweed is a billion-dollar industry and it's used in lots of different facets of human consumption, like toothpaste and chocolate milk is a thickener, so it's used a lot as a thickener in, in different components as well. So it is farmed already a lot. Foraging in its tradition, in its nature, is really more about a personal gathering of food and that it's naturally wild growing, like dandelion, for example, or mushrooms, which are really common foraged. So foraging is really a personal process, whereas farming is more on a commercial scale. And so with anything on a large scale, it needs to be done with great care. And like fish farms, seaweed could also be grown in farms in a way that isn't harmful to the ocean or the environment. And many countries, Korea, 
China, Japan, they already cultivate huge quantities of seaweed and eat a large amount in their diet every day. Japanese people eat up to five grams a day and they are renowned for their long life and their good health and it's considered that a lot of that is contributed to the high levels of seaweed in their diet. Finally, can there be more harm than good taking the ocean's resources out of their natural habitat? You know, I think that that's the point that you make there, isn't it? It's a natural habitat, and so, which is hugely complex, and maybe we don't even understand it as human beings, and that the huge consideration needs to be taken to keep that in a sustainable way that is not taking too much. And so it's probably not a, an effective way to do it just naturally, and it's a natural environment, but more in a way that is, say, like I've seen oyster farms where they string oysters up or and they do it with seaweed as well, where they could add extra farms, floating farms of seaweed and produce big quantities of it and it wouldn't impact the ocean. In New Zealand, one thing that's really common is marine reserves. And so that means a no-take zone, so that that is a really good way of protecting nature and that those reserves are very effective and can regrow huge communities of ocean dwellers very quickly and that even foraging on the outside of the ocean isn't permitted in those environments. So if it's just personal quantities, it's okay. But if it's commercial, like a chef that would want to take maybe half a kilo or a kilo from time to time, then that would require a license. And then there's the bigger scale, which which is grown in and cultivated in New Zealand where there's, there's huge quantities. Thank you, Rebecca. You can check out her work at www.theseaweedforager.net. And make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In Podcast 50, we celebrated being together for 50 Farms Food Future episodes, featuring some of our favourite interviews of all time. Then in Podcast 51, we brought you all the clues on what lead organisations on the front lines of the battle against climate change are focusing on in 2024. And in Podcast 52, we tackled the impact of safeguarding marine biodiversity in the battle against climate change. Don't miss out next month as we talk about nutritious school meals for a healthy life and update you on IFAD's Governing Council. And wrapping up this special episode on the power of seaweed, we speak to Bren Smith on regenerative ocean farming. You're listening to Podcast 53 of Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Our final guest is Bren Smith, a lifelong commercial fisherman. Bren was named one of Rolling Stone magazine's 25 people shaping the future and featured in Times Magazine's Best Inventions of 2017. He pioneered the development of regenerative ocean farming with his company Green Wave. Regenerative ocean farming is a zero-input polyculture seaweed and shellfish farming model that brings life back into our oceans. Greenwave's programming has included farmer-forward training and support, climate subsidies, market development and infrastructure. Bren is also an award-winning author with his book Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures Farming the Ocean to Fight Climate Change. He tells our reporter, Kira Rainsby, what farming seaweed, or kelp, is really all about.
It's an honor to be here. We're right in the middle of seeding season right now. So kelp especially is is on our mind. First of all, we know that kelp is a sort of the sequoia of the sea. It is a it is the kind of climate farming we want to be doing in the future, not only because it's zero input, so using no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed, and of course no land, but also it's more than just sustainable. It's regenerative. It's breathing life back into the ocean. So for example, kelp has a lower carbon footprint than lentils. It can also turn it into agricultural products. So there's food, there's kelp mushroom burgers, but there's also agricultural products where you're taking all those amazing nutrients from the ocean that in fact have leached and run off the land, leaving our soils desperate for nutrients. They're in the ocean. We can collect it with our kelp and get it back to our land-based farms. And what that does is kelp particularly gives land-based farmers two tools. One, it, it provides them drought tolerance and heat tolerance. It's sort of the perfect crop for the future and the future of climate cuisine. And how do you ensure that marine life is not harmed in the process of ocean and kelp farming? The first thing is because we're using the whole water column to grow both shellfish and seaweeds, we can have a very small footprint. So if you have like a 20 acre area, you can grow quarter million pounds of kelp. That's a huge amount. So when the storms come in, you want to be resilient. So you want your farm to be a willow, not an oak. And the second thing is this isn't about avoiding harm with marine mammals. We're actually building farms that are sanctuaries. Increasingly, there are fewer and fewer places for our marine mammals to go to hide, thrive, eat. The reefs are destroyed. The underwater kelp forests are disappearing. And these are thriving ecosystems with kelp, with mussels, with the entire reefs, seals and ducks and fish and shrimp. It's just grown and grown. Sort of the word has gotten out amongst the little critters that this is the place to go. And in fact, the best commercial fishing and recreational fishing in my area is around and in my farm because it is a reef. So I really think that if we set aside the entire oceans as a conservation park, everything's going to die. We need humans rebuilding reefs, breathing life back to the ocean, soaking up carbon, having their farms really play that core foundational role in the ecosystem. And that's how we're going to make sure that marine mammals have a future. Now, does the ocean and kelp farming take away from the resources of a lot of rural coastal communities, including indigenous peoples who may live off the land and sea around them? I mean, let's take generally rural, isolated communities. Green Wave's mission is to train and support the next generation of ocean farmers so that they own and lead the new blue economy. And the ways we do that is we have the Regenerative Ocean Farming Hub, where we have open source tools, 80 videos, curriculum that anybody can access. We have farm design tools, interactive budgets, and that is designed for the smallholder farmer. And then the other piece of the hub is the seaweed source, where we bring companies and small-scale farmers onto that hub in order to create forward contracts so that a farmer has a place to sell their seaweed before they even grow. As far as then including the indigenous communities, we work deeply in places like New York, Alaska, New Zealand with indigenous communities. And, you know, we are there as technical support. What indigenous partners tell us is they're really there for food security. Our wild fisheries are suffering. There's fewer and fewer fish out in the sea. So there needs to be new food sources. So it's also for indigenous folks about water rights. So we work with, you know, the Shinnecock Kelp Farmers Women's Cooperative 
in New York. And the first treaty ever signed was around seaweed and shellfish. So they're really using the permitting and the zoning process to reclaim their water rights. And there's also issues of seed security. Like already we're seeing patents going through systems where people are trying to privatize kelp seed. And so very important that we support farmer-owned seed banks so we have control of over our entire supply chain. And finally, how do you guarantee that smallholder farmers are supported in their efforts to create a climate-resilient food system? Here's the challenge. Our food system is being pushed out to sea. There's population increase. There's a nutrient crisis on land. Green Wave is designed to really support the smallholder farmer vision because we hold together climate mitigation and inequality. The thing about this space is we get to build something from the bottom up. We get to build an economic model that protects seeds, that supports indigenous rights and smallholder farmers, that ensures that economic justice is woven into the DNA and it's It looks like networks of co-ops and shared infrastructure. And the question is, why? Do they all want to be kelp farmers? No, they want to be part of building something new and have the agency to be part of this climate movement. The power of ocean farming is we can scale up very, very quickly at very, very low cost, right? It's just ropes and buoys. But carbon markets, the science behind measuring blue carbon It all has to happen, but it's too slow. So what GreenWave did was create a kelp climate fund, which is a climate subsidy where we pay farmers to support them to plant kelp. We're doing 52 farms around the U.S. this year. In return, they provide data. We've got a My Kelp app where the farmers take pictures, record some physical data, create traceability in terms of ecosystem services and measuring it. So then when the blue carbon market matures, we can close down the kelp climate fund, but we've got a really great data data set in order to bring rigor to the credits and offsets. Thank you to Bren and to our reporter, Kira. You can find out more about GreenWave at www.greenwave.org. And that brings us to the end of episode 53. Thanks as always to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, and to our reporters, Rosa Gonzalez and Kira Rainsby. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 53 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Join us at the beginning of March to hear the latest from IFAD's Governing Council. We'll also be talking about the importance of nutritious school meals for a healthy life. And we'll be back again at the end of March with an episode on women's role as leaders in preserving traditional local foods. Remember, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to this address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, I'm going off to get a nice plate of seaweed, Michelle. That's a little tasty snack. I'm coming with you. And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAD. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.